raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. The 127th edition of the Four Corners podcast starts right now. Black holding high, goes to Darty. Darty and the double team, gives it back to Black with 20 seconds left to play. Goes back to Michael Jordan, jumper from out on the left, good! Rebounded by Weber. Michigan out of timeout. Weber front court, Carolina with foul. He takes the timeout, they're out of timeout. Technical foul, technical foul on Michigan. Ed Corbett says he can run the baseline, hands in the ball. Brown gets it into Williams. Here comes Williams front court. Williams on the drive, gets it back out to him, long outside shot, short rebounded, May, it's over, Carolina has won the national championship. 89-72, and how about them Tar Heels, they are the national champions. Matthews, off the mark, and this year the confetti it's going to fall for North Carolina. They're not going to be denied this time. I am now joined by voice of the Tar Heels and co-host of the Carolina Insider podcast, Jones Angel. Jones, good afternoon. How's it going today, man? Oh, Josh, doing great. Appreciate you having me on and uh, uh, looking forward to talking a little Tar Heels. I appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule to come on and talk with me. And uh, let's go ahead and dive right into this thing. It's been... It's been almost a month since Carolina lost to Kansas in the national title game on the final Monday night of the season. But looking back on it, does it still feel real that Carolina made the national title game as an eight seed that in the middle of February was projected to not make the NCAA tournament? Oh, yeah. I mean, what a terrific run it, it was. And, yeah, I think uh, as you look back on the season, um, you could see the Tar Heels getting a little bit better and a little bit better as the year went along. And, um, then, gosh, I mean, those final couple of weeks, even in the regular season, Josh, I think you could see, uh, and that Pittsburgh game is the outlier, I think. You, you could see Carolina getting a little bit better and doing some better things. And, and then that Pitt game really made you question it. But, man, some some just really impressive performances after that. The, the win at Virginia Tech, um, the home win against Syracuse when, when I thought Syracuse played really really well had a couple battles with louisville down the stretch as well when when the cardinals i thought played well in in those games and and then it was that win at duke that really seemed um to turn things completely around just in the sense that it felt like the tarios then really believed um that they could compete with with one of the better teams in the country because i think throughout the season and again there were an outlier or two in this statement but throughout the season for the most part carolina beat the teams that it was better than or that it that it was equal to but it was those teams that that were better either in total or at that time that Carolina really struggled with and so to be able to get that win I think uh, really 
provided the springboard for him heading into that uh, terrific tournament run. And, and the thing about that run in the tournament, it, Carolina was an eight seed, yes. But I thought Carolina played as well in the tournament as any team. And, and certainly Kansas is in that conversation and, and, and a few others. But that wasn't a fluke run for Carolina to the, to the national championship game. Uh, I thought they were playing um, at such a high level um, throughout that entire tournament that they earned that that run to the national championship game. You mentioned Carolina got better and better as the season went along, and of course you got you, you got a front row seat to see their improvement. When did you believe that they were capable of of making the run to the final four? They eventually did. You know that's a that's a great question. I, I think it's probably the Baylor game, mm-hmm. um, just because. You have to the, – the tournament is so much about the individual matchups in the bracket. Um, great teams you know, sometimes don't get to the Final Four. The best team rarely wins the national championship because it is so, A, difficult just to do, but B, it is so much predicated on – the individual matchup of the game and who's hot. You know, I think about 2019 when Carolina had such a good team and it had a terrific season and was a number one seed. And then they ran into an Auburn team in the sweet 16 that just couldn't miss a three pointer. It felt like, and the Tigers made, I think it was 17 against Carolina in, in that sweet 16 game. And the Tarnals were sick. They had a couple guys who were sick. And so, I mean, it was just, But that happens in an individual uh, game tournament like that where one loss and you're done, that happens. And so uh, while I do think it was the Duke game in Cameron that provided um, that momentum and and that positivity and that reinforcement for Carolina that it could compete at that level, you you still look at the bracket and you go, wow, this is tough. You know, Baylor and you you saw Kentucky down there as a two seed and and UCLA and, and there were just some really good teams and Carolina's bracket. And so to envision them being able to defeat so many of them would be hard to see. And so when they went in there and and were dominating that Baylor game through 30 minutes, and then, uh, you know, were able to survive in that overtime where I don't think anybody could have liked Carolina's chances (laughs) going into the overtime period, even on the radio, we said, you know, that exact thing, that, that you just couldn't like the position Carolina was in. And so for them to both dominate a really good team in Baylor for 30 minutes and then sust- uh, be able to bounce back after that devastating final 10 minutes of regulation and win what was essentially a road game in Fort Worth in overtime, I think that's when when you started thinking, man, you know, not only – um, is Carolina just a couple games away from the Final Four, but they are playing at a level um, that that is uh, capable of getting them there. And so, to me, that that was the win that really led you to believe that this was a team that that could do something pretty special. I'm not old enough to remember that run to the 2000 Final Four, also as an eight seed, but you were around back then to to see the Tar Heels make that run. Did this run feel more improbable than what Bill Guthridge's squad did in 2000 to make that Final Four? I think so, just because I think Carolina beat better teams this time around. And that's not to say anything negative about the the 2000 team either. I mean, they they beat the number one seed that year in Stanford and beat a really good four seed in Tennessee in the Sweet 16. Um, But I and I don't know if it was quite as 
improbable that particular year. And and that was a good team. You know, Joseph Forte was on that team, a mm-hmm. terrific player in, in college, Brendan Haywood, Chris Lang, Jason Capel. Uh, Ed Cota was a senior that year. So, I mean, th- those were some really good players for Carolina and, and a really good team. I, I do think one thing that really binds those two runs together was just the fact that it, it was it had a different feeling to it because it was unexpected. I think for Carolina, you know, the Tar Heels so often are a one seed or a two seed and, and a team that's expected to have a chance to go to the final four. Um, those two years in 2000 and then this past season, uh, I'm not sure many brackets uh, had the Tar Heels there or anybody was thinking about Carolina doing that, even though, as we've said, the Heels, I think, were playing better basketball. Um, so when there is just a different excitement to it and different energy to it, um, when you are a team that isn't expected necessarily to do it. And so um, two great runs from both of those teams. This year's version was able to get one game deeper. Uh, Carolina lost in the national semifinals in 2000 to Florida uh, when Ed Cota actually leading in that game in the second half before Ed Cota got into foul trouble. Um, So both those were terrific runs. Unfortunately, neither produced a championship, but both produced uh, some fantastic postseason memories for sure. It's it's safe to say that Carolina wouldn't have made the Final Four without the help of Armando Baycott, who set the Carolina record and tied the NCAA record for double-doubles in a single season in the history of Division I college basketball. Is there any reasonable way to put into words what Mondo accomplished individually this past season? But statistically, it, it is one of the best seasons ever for a Carolina big guy, and you can put that up against anybody you know Tyler Hansborough when he was national player of the year in 2008 Bryce Johnson when he had such a terrific season in in 2016 um the the consistency of the numbers from Armando Baycott this year were was staggering yeah rebounding wise really the only Tar Heel that that can compare is Billy Cunningham who's who's at least statistically and I think probably in total uh, the greatest rebounder that Carolina has ever had, even though he isn't Carolina's all-time leading rebounder because he didn't play four full seasons. But uh, it was the consistency of the numbers that made Baycott stand out. This wasn't he went on a great eight-game run and had a terrific uh, you know, mid-January or something. It, it was every single night that he was putting up those numbers um, on the glass. And, and you said it. I mean, the 31 double-doubles, tying for the most ever in a single season with David Robinson. When you're in that kind of company, you know you're doing something right. When you're the first ever player in a six-game NCAA tournament to have six double-doubles, that's a pretty impressive feat because there's obviously been some terrific players that have uh, gone deep and had terrific runs in the NCAA tournament. So um, it it was, again, statistically just an incredible year for Armando Baycott. And – and I keep saying statistically because that's the I think that's the best way to measure it, but also just in watching his play and, and the importance to the team. I mean, uh, you don't need to look much further than the national championship game where he wasn't 100% and um, couldn't produce quite at the same level, even though he, he did his darndest to do so um, with that ankle injury just to see how much that affected Carolina. And so um, just an outstanding year. I still think it's an absolute shame that he did not win ACC Player of the 
the year this past season. That's mm. nothing uh, against Alondis Williams from Wake, who had a terrific year. Um, but I think when a lot of those votes were sent in, Alondis Williams won that award because at the time he was leading the, the conference in both assists and in points, something that had never been done before. But once the season was over, he didn't lead that the conference in either one of those categories. And so um, it, it, it is frustrating. I'm sure Armando doesn't care about it, but it is frustrating that he did not earn that ACC player of the year this past season. And uh, I'm sure he'll be one of the favorites this upcoming year. He was one of the first of the iron five uh, that were eligible to return for next season to announce his return for 2022-23 with their sights set on a national championship. What can we expect for Baycott in his senior season this upcoming year? Well, I think uh, a couple things will be interesting to watch is, you know, where where can Armando Baycock get better? Uh, and so I think a couple different areas. Number one is just with his straight back to the basket game. And, you know, Eric Montross, who who does the games uh, on the Tar Sports Network with me, he talks about this a lot, about how good Armando Baycott is when he's moving. And, and he is. He's so good in that pick and roll game and uh, moving to the basket and, and he, he's so nimble for his size that you think so many of his impressive buckets come where he gets the ball and he's pivoting because um, he's already moving and, and some of the guys that are trying to guard him just aren't skilled enough to stay with him because he is so good in that regard. Um, I, I do think there is still room for improvement though, where he just gets the ball on the block and, and has his back to the basket and is going one-on-one and, and makes a move. Um, that is an area I think he can improve. I know he will want to continue to improve um, his jump shot and, and that 15-footer or so. He took even took a couple threes this year, made one against Boston College. That will never be uh, the dominant part of his game, but it will be something I'm sure that he'll want to continue to expand on. Uh, I think he'll you know, want to become more consistent at the free throw line. He, he actually was pretty good throughout the regular season, was right around 70% or so but struggled some in the NCAA tournament from the line. I know that's an area that he would like to become uh, more consistent because it's a spot where he's going to get to a bunch uh, throughout the course of the year. And then he and and everybody can continue to get better defensively. So um, he is somebody, you know what his strengths are at this point. Um, He's good around the rim. He's good on the move. He's a terrific rebounder. We know all of those things. So now can he take some steps forward in the other areas of his game? Uh, I think that'll be what will be worth watching uh, as Carolina gets ready to go next year. Another big part of Carolina's run this past season was behind Brady Mick, the transfer in from Oklahoma, but just had one year. But he he uh, he left it all on the court for Carolina with his one season with the Tar Heels. What will Brady Mannix's legacy be at UNC? I think the amazing part, about Brady Manick was not, it was just how perfect a fit he was for Carolina in so many different ways. Um, what I think we and uh, everyone around college basketball, and by we, I mean people who follow the game, are learning is that the transfer portal is not just about basketball when it works. It, it has to be basketball and culture and fit in the locker room and, and yeah can that person who is coming in uh, match with the people who are already there and so that is just i think it's harder to determine that when you're working on that accelerated timeline that the transfer portal requires when you are recruiting somebody that is traditionally a multi-year relationship where you're getting to know the player 
parents, the AAU coach, the high school coach, you know, whoever else is important around that person, um, you get to know the the full picture. And and so, of course, you're looking for talented basketball players, but you also want somebody who is going to fit in with with your team, with your program, with your culture. You know, for for the transfer portal, you know, for example, John. I mean, last year Carolina called Brady Manic on Monday. He called them back on Tuesday, and he was a member of the team on Friday <laughs> in one week. And so that that's obviously a very different timeline that you're working with. And you even saw this year, you know, Carolina had three different transfers come in, and and the three guys, Brady Manick, Justin McCoy, Dawson Garcia, had varying levels of success um, with what they were able to do. And I think some of that – is because it is so hard to know if that fit makes sense um, in that accelerated timeline. And so with Brady Manick, he not only filled the position on the court uh, that Hubert Davis, I think the biggest change that Hubert Davis brought um, just as far as pure basketball is concerned with Carolina with that stretch four position, he not only filled that role so perfectly, but he was able to mesh with a group that had already played together some, at least for one season together um, from the previous year. And so he messed with those guys, fit in in the locker room, uh, understood where his role was on the team. And, and I just think that's hard, especially when you're talking about somebody um, who's coming in with expectations of a fresh start and, and they've transferred for a reason. And for a lot of those guys, it's the – get the ball in their hands and to shoot a whole bunch and, and to be a more featured player wherever they are going. And so for him to fit in in all those capacities, I think was really, really impressive. I know it's a different set of circumstances because Manick was a four-year player at Oklahoma and he transferred into Carolina, but is he the greatest one and done in UNC history? Well, they're just two totally different categories. It just He might be the greatest transfer in Carolina history at this point, although mm-hmm. you know, certainly Bob McAdoo uh, would argue with that point. But um, I think when you're talking one and done, you're talking two different, two totally different worlds on a one and done uh, for a high school player and a one and done for somebody who's over 20 years old and mature and understands the game and all those different things. Um, so is he, uh, he is certainly, I think, in the conversation as the most impactful transfer that Carolina has had, but but when you say one and done, to me, those are two different two different worlds that you're discussing. When you go back to the summer when when Huber Davis got hired, and we we're talking about transitioning from the way Roy Williams wanted to play to Huber Davis wanted to play, a lot of talk about how the the change was going to benefit the guard, specifically on this roster, Caleb Love and R.J. Davis. And I know it's easy to say because they made the national title game that, yeah, it benefited them. But did those two guys individually develop as fast as you thought they were going to during the season from the the way they played from their freshman year to their sophomore seasons? Well, they both, I think, just took a natural step from their freshman year to their sophomore year. And, and for the most part, with most guys, that is that is consistency. That That is you're taking better shots. Your shot's going in a little bit more. You're not turning the ball over as much. Uh, you get better at the free throw line. You know, just all those things that happen with playing a second year in in college basketball because you get used to it. It's just something now that you aren't going to be surprised by a lot of things. Um, I do think it's worth mentioning, and you know, Carolina completely changed the way that it wanted to play at some point, and Josh, I can't give you a game or a moment or anything like that, 
But if you look at how the Tar Heels played offense, it, it was dramatically different from the beginning of the year mm-hmm. to the end of the year. And, and a big reason for that was how many ball screens Carolina started using within its half-court offense. Having R.J. Davis with the ball in his hands a lot in that half-court offense, allowing him to make decisions with the ball, both he and Caleb Love working hard off those ball screens to get uh, favorable one-on-one matchups for them, whether that was to drive and kick or to uh, find Baycott on a roll or whatever it might be. And and I thought both of those guys did a really good job uh, when Carolina, particularly when Carolina went to that more ball screen heavy uh, approach later on in the year. And, and I say they put the ball in, in Davis's hands more That certainly isn't to say that Caleb Love didn't have it. We know that he had it in his hands plenty and was a dominant part of the offense as well. But I do think that with RJ Davis, uh, being that point a little bit more as the year went on and really getting heavily involved in that ball screen game, um, that really elevated Carolina's offense to a different level. We're talking with Jones Angel, voice of the Tar Heels and co-host of the Carolina Insider Podcast. You mentioned Caleb Love, and look, he's already got his place in Carolina basketball history with that shot over Mark Williams to beat Duke in the Final Four. And Carolina's, they're, they're not shy of having – great moments in the NCAA tournament. Where does that shot rank in, in, in all the great moments of Carolina basketball history? Oh, that's a great question. You, you know, I don't think – I think there is there is one tier of Carolina shots when you're, when you're having this discussion or argument, and those are ones that, that win you national titles or are synonymous with the national title season. And to me, that's, you know, of course, Michael Jordan against Georgetown – that's uh, Joe Quigg at the free throw line in triple overtime in 1957 mm-hmm. against Kansas. That's Luke May in, in the round of eight against Kentucky um, in, in 17. That's Marvin Williams put back uh, in 05 uh, to win that regular season finale against Duke. And so, again, all these shots, you know, Jordans and Quiggs in particular won the game, were the game deciding points in the national championship game. You know, those are those are hard to top. Um, and then some of those other ones that I mentioned, I do, again, think are synonymous with a title season. Those are the good. Those are the shots that you think about um, that really elevated that team or uh, at a key moment in time in, in that particular year that felt important, both in the moment and then looking back on the season. So I think those shots are in uh, in a category by themselves. Once you get through those, I, I can't think of a shot that will be more impactful or more memorable than Caleb Love's against Duke for, for all the reasons that we know. I mean, it was just such a remarkable confluence of events that came together for that particular game, with, with it being Mike Krzyzewski's final season, with it being Hubert Davis's first season, with it being their first ever meeting in the Final Four, with it being the national semifinal and the winner moving on. Uh, to the national title game, um, th- there was just so much that went into that game uh, that made it such a unique scenario, um, <laughs> and uh, it was just such a, a tension-filled game. I, it, Josh, I think it's the most intense game uh, that I've ever seen in, in person, and and both teams played really well, especially in the last 10, 12 minutes of that game. It was such a high-level contest with both teams making plays, individual guys stepping up and you know hitting big shots, and and it was just such a a, a great showcase for college basketball and and for Carolina Duke and for Love. 
to hit that shot, um, which I think it's funny. It, I mean, no doubt was the most dominant play of the game and, and the most important shot of the game. It didn't necessarily end the game, though. And, you know, Duke, of course, ran it right back up and cut it to two, and Carolina had to hit a couple free throws, and Duke did have the ball in a one-possession game still um, a couple seconds later. So it didn't necessarily end the game. Um, I think history will remember as the shot that ended the game, um, and it was an incredible shot, certainly by Caleb Love, who has never, ever shied away from those moments. He wants the ball in his hands in, in those type of scenarios. And, uh, boy, he, he hit one that I, I don't think Caleb Love will, will have to worry about uh, anybody forgetting that one or him ever having to pay for dinner again in Chapel Hill. I'm, I'm sure a Tariel fan will be happy to pick up the tab. As good as we felt about Carolina at the end of the regular season or going into into the tournament, this was a team that in the middle of January and February wasn't playing its best basketball, but this team still won 29 games overall, 15 games in the ACC, the second most in the history of the program. They made their 21st Final Four and were you know a couple minutes away from winning a national championship. When we look back on the 2021-22 Carolina basketball team, 10, 15 years down the road, how will, how will we remember this squad? I think it'll be that, that Iron Five uh, title, right? I, I think that's going to be it. I, I think people are going to think about um, those five guys, and that's not to diminish Puff Johnson or Dontre Styles or, or Justin McCoy or anybody else who, who made important plays for Carolina this season, but but I think it will always be remembered for those five guys and what they were able to do uh, for Carolina and, and with it being Hubert Davis's first season and there being so much new for Carolina basketball this year for the Tar Heels to, to get it all figured out in, in such a dramatic way was so exciting. And Josh, I think this is true. You know, I, I also think that part of this is because of COVID and because you're coming off these two years that, that were so difficult, both on the court for Carolina and just period in society for everybody. And I think the year in, in 20, uh, the 2021 season where the season was played, but it was so odd and there were no fans and you, know, you never knew who the opponent was going to be or when the game was going to be, because it was constantly changing and, yeah, I, I do think it was just hard to be a fan. It, it was hard to connect with the team. And so I think this run for Carolina and those, and particularly those five guys, they connected with Carolina fans. And, and it was, and this is going to sound a little dramatic, but I think a lot of people kind of remembered what they loved about mm-hmm. Carolina basketball and college basketball. And they, they fell back in love a little bit with the sport and, and the team, because I think not just at Carolina, I just think everywhere you, you, it was easy to lose that connection. And so to be able to have that run and, and have guys um, that all were all kind of different, right. You know, I mean, you had David, RJ Davis, the, the scrappy little guy, the scrappy undersized point guard and Caleb Love, who's going to go out there and take the big shots and leaky black. Who's going to do all the little things uh, to, to help you win and Brady Manic with the big beard and, and the three point shooting and Baycott with his rebounding. And you know, all the guys were different. There were, there were different styles of players that you could really latch onto depending on what you liked as a player or within the game. And it, it just allowed fans to connect again. And, and to me, those five guys and that connection with Carolina fans will be what, what is always remembered.
I mentioned the rough stretch the program went through during January into February, and with that came some criticism of head coach Hubert Davis. And I have to tell on myself and admit that I was critical at times and even doubted at times if Carolina had made the right hire. You saw him up close for the last six months or so of the basketball season. What did you learn about Carolina's basketball coach? Well, I yeah, the thing about Hubert Davis, a lot of things. One, I think you have to appreciate the difficult situation that that he was handed. Um, you're walking into one of the most high-profile jobs in college basketball. You're walking into a place where where excellence is expected, and you're following one of the whatever number you want to put on it three, five, seven greatest coaches in college basketball history in Roy Williams. All of those things would be difficult for a seasoned coach to walk into and now you're doing it as somebody who's a first year head coach first Mm -hmm. year ever being a head coach and so that's just a lot on one person's plate and so there was never any question is basketball knowledge i mean obviously he knows the game he played it at a high level in college played it for more than a decade in the nba has uh, been around some terrific coaches, both as a player um, and as an assistant here at Carolina. So obviously, Hubert Davis understands basketball. I think what was a challenge for him was just all the other stuff that comes with being a head coach. Plus, you mix in the fact that um, there were new players and transfers and freshmen that were playing important roles. There was a change in in the way that Carolina was playing. Plus, there's all these outside factors in college basketball and athletics right now um, that are so unique with the transfer portal, with NIL, all those different things. And so it was a lot for him and for anybody to be able to manage in one year. But I think you saw as the year went along, he became more comfortable with it because he had experienced it some at that point. Uh, I'll be fascinated to find out, you know, three, five years from now to say, Hey, you know, looking back, what, what did you like that you did? What did you just do totally wrong in your opinion, looking back on it? Because I just think it, it was something he had to go through to gain those personal experiences to be able to build off of them some. And so I I would assume that Coach Davis would tell you he feels like he's a better coach right now than he was a year ago. Um, And I think that learning curve is still going to be steep enough for such a young coach um, that it will still be that way in another year or so. And, And so all of that being said, Hubert Davis never changed who he was. He stayed positive both publicly and privately. That doesn't mean that he can't be hard on the players and demanding because he is that as well. He stayed positive, stayed true to himself, and I think that helped him get through what would be a difficult season for for anybody in that situation. Roy Williams was famous for his Royisms, for all of his quirky sayings that he would say uh, over the years. As I said, you got to see Hubert Davis up close and personal for the last six months. I asked Adam Lucas this same question. What was your favorite Hubertism you picked up from him over the basketball season? Oh, gosh, he does have a couple. I mean, I, I think we all heard energy, effort, and toughness uh, <laughs> plenty uh, throughout the year. Um, the, the live action that, that everybody was introduced to 
in the national championship game during that in-game interview, you know, that's something that he likes to say a lot where he's, it's live action out there. That That's his way of kind of telling you that, hey, it's game on. You know, it's it's time to, to put on your big boy pants and let's go do this. And so um, it, it is funny it, just because you do get used to hearing the same things over and over again, you know, from Coach Williams being here for nearly 20 years, that you, you knew some of his stories and knew the point that he was trying to make with the stories that he was telling. And so you got this whole brand new, uh, got this whole brand new uh, set of terms and set of stories from Hubert Davis this season. But uh, it was a lot of fun working with him for sure and, and looking forward to doing it again next year. I'll get you out on this, Jones. Carolina returns four starters back from the Iron Five, Caleb Love, R.J. Davis, Leaky Black, Armando Baycott, Puff Johnson, Dontrez Styles, contributors off the bench are back. Carolina's adding four freshmen in a recruiting class, and they can go into the portal to address uh, the, 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 the rest of their roster. Is it safe to say that going into next season, it's national Tyler bus for Carolina basketball? Uh, no, because it's not safe to say that for anybody because it's really hard to win the national championship. I, I think it is fair to say that Carolina will be uh, a national championship and Final Four contender, and that they are a team that, on paper, can you know is in that conversation. Because I do think that, uh, as you referenced, that they are going to have um, a good combination of experience, of talent, of uh, some new blood coming in that that'll push. Uh, the older guys, um, the older guys can be there to help the younger guys learn the ropes a little bit. Um, you'll expect some of those uh, some of those players like Puff Johnson and Dontre Styles to take steps forward. And I know it's Puff's third year, but but second year healthy and Styles second year, so you expect them to take some steps forward. Um, so they certainly have a lot of pieces. Um, that would suggest that they can be a team that can compete at that level. But as we said uh, near the very beginning. That, that tournament is really hard to win. And so if you judge your entire success of the season on whether or not you win the national title, then you don't have very many good seasons because it is hard to win. And so this is a team that should compete for the ACC championship, a team that should compete for a high seed in the NCAA tournament, which hopefully puts them in position to make the final four. But you have to stay healthy um, and you have to have a few breaks along the way. It's just the nature of this sport. And I do think, Josh, it's super dangerous just to assume because it's happened at Carolina a couple times that if you, you went to the championship and lost last year, oh, well, they'll just come back and win it this season. That, that's only happened four times ever. In college basketball, it just so happens that Carolina's done it twice. You know, they lost in 81 and then won it in 82, lost in the championship game in 16, and then won it in 17, and then Duke did it one time and Kentucky did it one time. It, it's just hard to do. And, and so to assume that it's going to happen, uh, I think would be very dangerous. But having said all that, certainly the Heels will be in that conversation. They should be able to put themselves in position to do it. Um, but that is, uh, at that point, it is a much uh, more difficult thing to achieve. Jones, I want to thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to come on and talk some Carolina basketball with us looking back on this past season and getting us ready for next season. And hopefully we'll do it again uh, a, a, a little bit later down the road. Okay, man? Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Thank you, Jones. There you go, guys. That is Jones Angel, voice of the Tar Heels and co-host of the Carolina Insider Podcast. We're going to take a quick break. Get you this week's ad from DraftKings, and then when we come back, I'll shut down this edition of the Four Corners Podcast.
As if the McCrispy couldn't get any better, bacon and ranch just entered the chat. The Bacon Ranch McCrispy, available at participating McDonald's for a limited time. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The NBA playoff action is nonstop at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. This week, new customers can bet just $5 on any team to win and get $150 in free bets if they do. Looking to turn a small bet into a big day, a big payday during the NBA playoffs with DraftKings same game parlays, you can do just that. Create your own parlay by combining multiple bets like which team will win, total threes made, total rebounds, and more, and boom, you have a shot at an even bigger payout. Right now, all customers can place a same-game parlay with three or more legs and get a free bet back up to $25 if one leg doesn't hit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the promo code TBPNXX. Bet $5 on any NBA team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they do. That's promo code TBPN only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions do apply. See show notes for details. Really hope you guys are taking great advantage of all these great offers I've been giving you on the Four Corners side of things. Same for Anthony there on the Heel Tough blog podcast as well. That is going to wrap up this edition of the show. But we do encourage you guys, get over to the website, heeltoughblog.com for your latest on Carolina basketball and football. We're keeping you up to date, whether it's it's transfer portal, whether it's recruiting, whether it's just any general news or notes, we have you covered on the Carolina football and basketball front. As for the podcast, you know where to find us. Every major podcasting platform, just simply search the Four Corners Podcast and we will pop up. You can like and review the pod wherever you, you download it at. But most importantly, we encourage you guys to hit that subscribe button. That way you don't miss any great editions of the podcast throughout the remainder of the basketball off season. Well, this is going to wrap up this edition of the show. I want to thank Jones once again for joining me. I want to thank you guys for listening. And as always, go Tar Heels. The Four Corners Podcast is a proud member of the Basketball Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at HoopsPodNet or visit our website, www.thebasketballpodcastnetwork.com to find the best basketball podcast. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time.